the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office. And yet, in spite of those efforts that began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree, perhaps continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in our local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all. And so, really, the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so, I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70 percent Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25 percent uh, Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society Jim, that, that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today, that, that equally we, we, it's foreign to us, to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today as, as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think that's, that's the, the key, is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture, 
we didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We, we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government and everything, but, but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of, of the gospel. And so by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle, but we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and, and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships, and planting the, the community of faith there. And, and I, think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. So we, the, the difference is, we, at the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I think that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy yeah. for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life. And that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust, putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that... Is, has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test, um, look through your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intensely in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship, but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ, and, and that's that really is the making fishers of men that I think Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be 
hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one, but it does know, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more open understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is take your time listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> So if you say, you know, this person is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out and just be in the relationship and, and let, let God do His work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're, they're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility, um, uh, 
towards Christianity? How can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities, where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely. And I think if you look historically, the church often has, has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, but you're right, history shows that. I mean, look at the early church, just the very beginning. I mean, the church starts with these, this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the, uh, the Colosseum and, and given to the animals, and yet, and yet the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary-trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group, um, and we can't depend on outside money, the, the, uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> and, of course, and it's so been... The point being a little bit facetious, but that, that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight-knit community approach to church rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And, you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today. And yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say what the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? 
We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars or at war with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people. And it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what his character is. It runs very contrarian to the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness and holiness. I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and and based on your experience in doing this, you know, uh, on a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, it's something that I think are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replaced community with, with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples used to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when we when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspective, rather than trivialize them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. And then absolutely, I mean, I think it's I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square, and we should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it, like you said, it does. It, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to, you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition, and so they're already thinking that. And we just kind of add gas to that understanding. It's it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can 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 quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating. And, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really, that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. 
Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point well, folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President, Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech, coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I I call the people in the book the illiberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, And that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they're, they still claim to value these things while at the same time they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates to say certain things you know, certain debates are over that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore and if you do talk about them you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know going to make you radioactive basically to the rest of society and, and how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate, and so that they don't they they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot. And and so you know, even though I I do support same-sex marriage, I, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill, and that you know, and then that the best way to engage people is to. Um, persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the illiberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, 
you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't, we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they, they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or the, you know the right side of the issue and and so that they you know there's, I, there's this example this just happened last month of a uh, Christina Hossummer who's she's an AEI scholar and she can't she went to Georgetown and Overland universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism it's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And, you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people, she had to have security, and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings, so they were being triggered, you know, this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger, and there were signs for a safe room where you could go and, and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous you know that that's i think that that is what is it takes it away from just your basic intolerance of uh, i can't hear this that it's actually posing a danger and need and then they try to get the speeches canceled and if they can't get the speeches canceled then they try to, they're very disruptive um or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is a tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non-beings. Non you don't even need to take them seriously. And with, with conservative women, they will do it through, you know, she's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, Bush in a skirt. Uh, they're all sort of, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the, the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that dehumanize, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to, to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. But what I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream 
liberals give give sort of a get out of jail free card to some of these commentators and and so-called news reporters who who use this kind of language for example you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as as bimbos I think at one time didn't Ed Schultz even use that demeaning term uh, directed toward you and and Mm -hmm. and when it's done the liberal left seems to look the other way but can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And they have started to be shamed by it. And so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. Though they always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to. You know, we have to stand up for this, but you know they're not. But but for a long time they didn't, and a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing. That a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by. You know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was you know sitting atop his perch at MSNBC, is doing it. Whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then. But it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he, he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, Right. You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the the. the Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Rush, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to. You know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of, is, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus race. Statistics, and it's just kind of neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate 
uh, and, and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really us just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of um, of intolerance uh, by talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called bias response team. Uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive, you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or, you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it, uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the, the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really just often described as a violent event. That, that, the, the, that's the, the language that's used. I, I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student uh, who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, uh, that, that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration. That she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it's you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor, um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there, there are other ways the person is then silenced because, you know, they say, well, I just, I, I can't, you know, I just, it, it was, I can't. I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't. It's, you know, the irony is, is that you, when you breakdown. when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the nineteen fifties. Yeah, very similar. And it's there's yeah, there's an aspect of who you talk to also uh, is is indicative of. Of who you are versus what you say or what you think, and I experienced this actually when my book came out. When uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which 
is conservative. And because of that, I had all these liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, suddenly yeah, you're was, a shill, shill for the left, or for the right, right rather. <laughs> yeah, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to, into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration, and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she had apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, that's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There's, there, you know, there's this idea that uh, you know they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying you know they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million. You know, and and I'm not. I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't. And if and if, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't. I think that they they're they're, they're free to you know have have whatever kind of program they want to have. And uh, and I and I don't think that that means that you know if Chris Hayes does something on one show that uh, you know a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like the same way like they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows, and um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote-unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's i, I there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, these ideas for example that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually 
have friends or people that you are close to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they, they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that, that, at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them, and they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well that I had it all figured out. And basically working at Fox News and, and then later in life conversion to Christianity where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, uh, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean, they were prejudices uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and th- these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope, and 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 I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible. And I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so, yeah. It, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things, or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.